Jeff Hodges, thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. When did the military become a part of your life? Uh, actually, shortly after high school. Mm-hmm. I had a friend of mine and I that I'd gone to school with for a couple of years. We decided that uh, we were going to join the Army and we were going to go drive tanks around. That's what we wanted to do. And it so happened that the uh, Marine recruiter had come to school and he had known that I was kind of thinking about the Marines, but I told him that I wanted to join the Army instead. Because Army has tanks? <laughs> well, I knew that I'd be able to drive tanks. Right, okay. If nothing else. And he, well, he wanted me to list a reason, uh, list uh, why I wanted the Army over the Marines. And I told him that I thought the Marines were too hard. Like, it seems to me that the concept is the Marines are the badasses. You know, it's physically demanding in junior high, high school, all through growing up. I was not physically fit, even in the least. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was something that was, felt like it was beyond my reach. And the cr- recruiter looked at me and said, well, you looks like you'd settle for second best then. <laughs> and I knew right then that uh, he had me, but I wasn't going to let him know it. At least not then. But uh, a little while later, I signed the papers, and then I ended up uh, going to boot camp after my freshman year at KU. Hmm. Where'd you go to boot camp? San Diego. San Diego. Uh, what was the boot camp experience like? Um, if you want a really accurate depiction, Full Metal Jacket, at least the boot camp part of right, it, is right. reasonably accurate, as is uh, the beginning part of the movie Jarhead. All right. And actually, Jarhead overall is probably one of the most honest military films I've ever seen. Because it's actually written by a soldier. So uh, yes, it was we, written by uh, Anthony Swafford, yeah. Marine. Um, what were you planning on going to college after high school, or were you just planning on going into the armed services? College had always been something I wanted to do, and regardless of my armed services involvement. Uh, I wanted to maybe go career or or I wanted to finish that degree and maybe use that to become an officer, mm. you know, get a commission and serve the military in some other capacity. After I had seen the enlisted side, I wanted to stay that, at least for the remainder of my contract and see how. I, I just like the camaraderie of it better. Mm-hmm. You know, like the phrase, it's lonely at the top. Well, you're in a band of, well, brothers for lack of a better term. It's cliched, but it's true. Cliche. <laughs> All cliches have a kernel of truth in them. Um, and when you did enlist, when, when did you enlist? What year was it? It would have been 99. 99. So when you did enlist, this is before September 11th. This is before... Prior to, yes. Yeah, and this is before President Bush was in office. So when you enlisted, did you have any inkling whatsoever that you would actually be deployed to a war zone? I had an idea. I suspected it, but I never actually knew. Uh, towards the end of my training, in uh, when I was in weapons training and whatnot, was the USS Cole incident. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of struck home. But then there was also the 2000 elections, which was also when I was in training. Mm-hmm. So seeing those things happen... I guess it does give you a little bit of a pessimistic perspective. <laughs> that, that sort of sinking feeling in your right. stomach. <laughs> but if you look at it, America has been at war for five years of every 20 yeah. of its existence. And if you 
consider Vietnam to be before this to be the last major. Yes, you have uh, a few other smaller Iran Contra. You have Desert Storm, mm-hmm. which was relatively minor by comparison. Well, it's getting to be ten years after Desert Storm. Something else is probably going to happen. <laughs> Just inevitable. Yeah. It's, uh, so that was something you probably always had in the back of your mind when you enlisted, but uh, wasn't. It wasn't something that you were seeking out. I wanted to be a be a part of the military. Right. If that meant that I had to be deployed and I had to do those things, great. If it meant I just sat back in the United States and pretended to be cool, that's great, too. (laughs) I like not getting shot at. Understood. Understood. So what what did go through your head when you found out that you were going to be deployed to Iraq? The first thing was I was actually really lucky because I was able to get my degree. I was able to graduate prior to shipping out because there were other guys that had been in college. Mm-hmm. and had to put their classes on hold. Mm-hmm. And I'd actually gone through putting my classes on hold when I thought I was going to be deployed two years previously to Djibouti, which is close to the Horn of Africa. Also not a real nice neighborhood. Mm. Um, but I was able to do that. But everything else, I had just gotten a new job. I had been looking at new houses, you know, just basically starting my life as a full college graduate yeah Yeah. college grad and i couldn't do any of that and it wasn't just for the time that i was gone but for the year leading up you know you can't make any commitments for a certain amount of time because you're not going to be there Mm -hmm. um more than that there was a certain feeling kind of like when you go downstairs christmas morning you're wondering what presents are there but you know christmas morning for like the Manson family. It's, uh, it's one of those things you're excited. You don't know what's going to happen. You want to see, you want to see it to the end, but you kind of don't. Yeah. Um, so you had a year before you actually, you, you were informed a year before you actually shipped out that you were going. It was actually close to 15 months. And that was because somebody screwed up and told me when they weren't supposed to oh so what's so you said that that like that put a major damper on any plans or commitments that you had to make and it's not just uh you know like uh buying a house or getting a new job but you know also in social life yeah you know do you really want to start something up when you're going to be gone for that long Mm -hmm. so it's eh, it's difficult yeah so and the entire time is it's just the and you mentioned the end that sort of weird anticipation is that right (laughs) but at the same time by the time i actually left throughout all the preparatory training and everything else i reached a point where i fully expected not to come back Mm. i like knew somewhere and it's actually a surprise that i even got to my 25th birthday after i got back Mm. and you know another one since but uh I just knew it wasn't. I wasn't going to see anybody in the United States again. It, but it wasn't worry. The common American view of death is that it's a bad thing. Right. And don't get me wrong. I like life. <laughs> I like life a lot. But uh, it's there are worse things. Yeah. Is that a mentality that you developed in the Marines? In that that's just sort of one of the things that you kind of have to anticipate is that you might lose your life in the line of duty. The Marines contribute to that, but it's more of a 
just sort of a self-realization. I mean, you understand that, you know, uh, there are certain things that you would rather die than do. Right. And or have done to you, rather. <laughs> <laughs> so you you really did anticipate that you were not going to come back from Iraq. Right. Um, like, I, you know, all the preparations, I made sure I had a will. I made sure that uh, all parties involved had a copy, yeah. that it was uh, signed by a notary. Regist- I mean, I had everything set, right. everything in order. Now, it, did you have that... Um, not premonition, but did you have that feeling because of what the nature of this war was going to be or just the fact that it, you were being deployed to a war? Was it specifically, I mean, did you anticipate that this was going to be a, a difficult and bloody war when you were deployed or is it just because you're a soldier and that's just sort of comes it, with the it's territory? It's sort of, you expect the worst. Right. You know, I mean, you expect the bloodiest you expect everything to go wrong that possibly can, mm. but you hope for the best. Right. <laughs> of course, you realize that the best never happens. So, uh, Thankfully, you're sitting here with us now. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but going back to when you were deployed, mm-hmm. um, what was your first impression What you stepped off the plane in Iraq? Or did you even did you step off the plane in Kuwait? Where where exactly did you fly to? Uh, you fly to Kuwait, right. and then there's a shorter flight on a C-130. It's a sort of a cargo plane. So you're just in the back of a cargo plane from <laughs> Kuwait to wherever you're going in Iraq. Uh, one of it could be any of at the time I think five air bases, hmm. and uh, one of the first things you notice is the heat. Right now. Uh, obviously <laughs> it's uh, a desert it's a desert it tends to get a little hot <laughs> and not only that you're wearing anywhere from 20 to 50 pounds of body armor mm-hmm. which makes it even worse so you could be 20 degrees hotter than the surroundings which are anywhere from 110 to even 130 on the hot days right. well uh what was your rank when uh, you were deployed i was actually uh did have the opportunity to be promoted in country which <laughs> A war zone type promotion is a totally different ceremony, and it's there's something special about it. But I was a corporal. Corporal, okay. Corporal of Marines. Right. And what about your impressions of the culture uh, when you got over there? The the weather and the environment, I'm sure, was a bit of a shock. But was there a culture shock? I imagine when you got over. Or did you even interact much with the population, or were you mostly? There on was actually barracks? a great deal of interaction. One of the things that sort of made it difficult, though, is a certain smell that seems to pervade the entire country. It's, I've heard of that. Yeah. A lot of people have heard, but in order to experience something like it, you need to go to a garbage dump on the hottest day of the year, cover it in human feces, and then set it on fire. Really? And that's honestly what it smells like. <laughs> the only saving grace is you get used to it. You don't notice yeah. it after a while. How long did that take? Uh, about a month. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a kind of a long grace period there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but as far as uh, interacting with the uh, locals, which were uh, for the most part Iraqis, but uh, you know, being right next to Jordan, Syria, you know, there is a great deal of either people traveling through, or you know, you go to the country next door, mm-hmm. just like someone here would run to Canada, run to Mexico for whatever reason. But. Uh, my job specifically, I was the gunner 
I am the focal point. I'm the human image of that given truck. Mm. So if somebody needs to communicate, especially with the language barrier, it's I'm the one who's doing it. And do you speak uh, Arabic? Yeah. But mostly what it is is, you know, hand and arm signals. You want somebody to stop. You want somebody to, you know, keep moving or yeah. whatnot. It's, but yeah, not being able to communicate directly is it makes it a little more difficult. Did you have a translator with you or are those kind of hard to come by? Very very a few times did we have a translator mm. but uh, a lot of times what would help especially if there's a lot of kids around have some hard candy on you <laughs> you know or you know other food because this i mean it is a war-torn country you know it's uh it's sort of a show of good faith mm-hmm. you know not really uh bribing necessarily it's just uh you start to one thing they tried to uh, tell us was that we're trying to win the hearts and minds. Well, I don't know how well that happened or how well we did that, but if you're nice to someone, chances are they might help you out in the future mm-hmm. or they're going to be more compliant if you need them to do something. And you said you were a gunner. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what duties does that entail? Um, well, it was a gunner for a Humvee. It's just your standard truck. Right. Uh, slap a machine gun on top of it. Mine happened to be a machine gun that fired grenades. Hmm. Uh, and your duties is basically you're defending your vehicle, everybody else in your convoy, be it military, or if you're escorting civilians for whatever reason, or if you're patrolling. Your objective is to make sure that if anybody happens to fire at you or happens to be aggressive to you, you return fire. Hmm. And... How frequently did you encounter that sort of interaction? Did you have to return frequency, fire? Frequency is – it would be really misleading because mm-hmm. it's it will go from nothing to you know back-to-back. There will be several encounters. But what makes it even more difficult is that in an urban guerrilla-type warfare, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're in cities, you're in built-up areas. If one person is shooting at you, you can't necessarily shoot back because if they're in a crowd of children or, you know, it just you can't just because someone's shooting at you, you have to know if you receive gunfire from a crowd. How do you determine which person in that crowd shot at you? Mm-hmm. You know, other than, you know, they're holding a rifle and pointing it at you. Uh, how can you tell which person did it? And also, even if you can tell, how can you tell that you're not going to hit anybody else that shouldn't be Mm -hmm. and especially with a weapon like mine it's not grenades yeah Yeah, grenades it's kind of hard to pinpoint grenades right especially you know when they have a lethal range of what 30 feet yeah and you're firing a lot of them really fast it's it does make it really difficult Mm. but uh so there would be times when we would receive fire, but either not be able to identify the source or, for whatever reason, not be able to fire back. Hmm. So it's, it's a different situation than you ever envision in, like, uh, any World War II movies or Vietnam movies where, you know, there's just hails of gunfire going back and forth. It okay. doesn't work just like Waves that. of easily identifiable enemies coming Right, you know, you. you got the green bullets coming one way and the red going the other yeah. way. And, <laughs> but then there's... That's just gunfire, though. Then you get into the issue of roadside bombs. Right. These uh, improvised explosive devices, they, 
most of the time they're buried, you won't see the person. It'll be a remote control, and as soon as you drive by, they hit the switch. Yeah. Or mortars. You know, you can't see when they're coming, but you can hear them when they're coming in, and you can you you can hear them a few seconds before they hit. Mm-hmm. So, and they're loud enough that you can't tell exactly where they're going to hit. And during all this, you're actually like outside of, it's like standing atop and partially yes. exposed uh, outside when of the this Humvee. Happens, yeah, I'm. I'm the one guy that's not inside the nice armored vehicle. Yeah. So it gets a little better. I mean, there were a few really close calls, mm-hmm. you know, where you would actually feel shrapnel flying through the air at you. Right. And just try to duck in time. I mean. <laughs> there has been kind of an issue that the Humvees weren't properly armored. Did you ever encounter that? Well, when I first arrived in country. I was lucky to have a Humvee with a plate steel door that didn't even have a window. Mm-hmm. Sort of like you would imagine in somebody's little Jeep Wrangler, you know, with the vinyl doors. Right. That's basically the equivalent. It's not going to stop a whole lot. The rest of it was fiberglass. And that's what I had. I used what it, you know, I could get. But even though, still, I was still outside the truck. So right. So. It doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> it's anyway. moot. Yeah. Then by the time as uh, there was more and more... Uh, it seemed that the Army, uh, as opposed to the Marine Corps, had more of an influence, and they have more money at their disposal. So mm. as a result, uh, they were able to afford better equipment. So by the time I left, we had fully up-armored trucks. Most of them had air conditioning. Whether or not it worked was another story. Right. But, you know, it was nicer armor, everything else. And the type of trucks that I was driving when I first got there, riding in, uh, you couldn't even go outside the wire. You couldn't go off base in them. Hmm. <laughs> so they're just kind of useless sitting around. Yeah, well, no, they're trucks that were basically waiting to have those oh, okay. kits put on them. Right. The armor kits and everything else. But uh, it's so a perspective of how well you're armored. How well are you going to be armored if, you know, a big explosive, an anti-tank mine rips through the bottom of your truck? Right. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. Um, is there... A particular instance where you did receive enemy fire or where you did encounter an IED uh, that you can recall or one that sticks out in your mind in particular? There are, There is one event, and it was something that, in retrospect, the person who had detonated it, I knew they were trying to hit my truck, and they just missed. Oh. So it's luck. If you're traveling fast enough, it's kind of hard to time. You know, okay, I, I need four seconds for this to go off. Well, right. if you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, it's kind of hard to guess when you're standing right next to it. Um, but when it happened, I remembered the explosion, and I honestly thought that uh, one of the friendly units around there, because I, I, there, as much as you work with other branches, there a lot of times there's some distrust between them. Hmm. Are you saying, like, between the Iraqi police and army? or Well, n- not even just the Iraqi police. I'm talking between the... Different U.S. Ameri- forces? Yes, really? different U.S. Okay. forces. I was actually, if you're talking actual gunfire, I was shot at more by the army than I was by anybody else. Really? And uh, that's actual gunfire, now, not once you count everything else. Yeah. And so, as a result, that was kind of what I had. I thought an army, just, army unit was uh, sending out suppress a fire for something else and they missed hmm. you know and I, I was pissed first of all but then i realized exactly what had happened and it was a huge bomb that just went off and just happened to miss my truck right behind you 
right behind right behind me really so you know, ears still ringing for a couple of days afterwards i mean it's it was pretty intense but i didn't realize how intense until after mm. uh did it uh hit a vehicle behind you or it got close it uh knocked a couple holes in the fiberglass hood really it was a larger truck but other than that uh nobody was hurt in it miraculous <laughs> yeah it was extremely lucky so and i've seen some video uh are you trained not to stop when you're driving down uh, iraqi roads or that is- actually is it, it seems to be a sort of popular point of discussion um it really is situation dependent yeah but a lot of the uh third country national drivers and the local drivers um uh, Especially the uh, there would be a, a lot of the truck drivers, civilian truck drivers, were Kurdish. Hmm. They refused to go on convoys with the army because that was their protocol. If they got shot at or somebody got blown up, you get out at the area. You save everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, while that's what Marines are supposed to do, uh, they're more likely to actually go after whoever's shooting. Yeah. So there is that situation dependent. You either stop and fight or you continue on mm-hmm. because if you stop maybe they're just sitting you right next to some other bomb so yeah it's, so you're always you, second you just never know you just yeah never you're know. always second guessing yourself um and you mentioned that you had some like independent contractors you had kurdish drivers in the convoys uh, occasionally well independent contractors are actually for the most part american right uh but then you have third country nationals. Uh, there would be Filipino drivers, uh, Jordanian, Syrian. Hmm. Uh, oh, is that part of the coalition of the willing? Or is that just people? It's basically people trying to make a buck. And okay. the Americans are there, and they're paying a lot of money for some of this. Because if you're helping the Americans out, it's a dangerous job. Yeah, yeah. And so you can make more in one night than you could in a month at some other job. Hmm. And... Um, so far as independent contractors, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about companies like uh, Blackwater. What's your opinion of these sorts of contractors? I understand that they're not thought of too highly by the actual armed forces over there and they're, that they have a bit of a air of elitism about them. The independent contractors, and again, it's a stereotype, but most stereotypes, like you said, have a kernel of truth to them. <laughs> Uh, is basically that one uh, paramilitary guy that collects all the old war memorabilia. Soldier of fortune types. Yeah, basically. You know, they they fancy themselves a mercenary. And so, but I can't say that I necessarily blame them to some degree because actually a lot of them are former military or at least Mm -hmm. former police. And I was actually offered a job. I could have gotten $24,000 tax-free per month. Mm Mm-hmm. When you start talking about that, well, <laughs> they're doing it for the money. You I understand the appeal. That. But yeah. as a result, since it is for the money, and that's the only reason that they're doing it, uh, trainings tend to suffer. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not saying that all of them are this way, but by and large, there's a huge portion that are ill-trained. Mm-hmm. And so they can sort of get into situations that they shouldn't be. And... Has that ever endangered troops, to your knowledge? It's... Because there's that famous incident where the Blackwater drivers were right. killed and dragged through the streets. which kind of set off the wave of violence in Iraq. Um, 
Right. You, is, is, is situations like that, are those kind of common? I don't really know how common they are, but it's things like that. And that actually happened prior to my going in country. Right. And so you're thinking about that enti- the entire time. You end up, the guys that you're with, you end up trusting them because you have to. Mm-hmm. But if there's someone new, regardless of whether or not they're private security, Iraqi police, or somebody else, there's that inherent distrust. You don't know them. You haven't been with them. You haven't suffered with them. So what's to say that they're going to value their life or your life any more than somebody else's? Right. Because they're, they're in it for the money. And they're themselves. in it for the money. Yeah. I mean, it's – and so there is that bit of distrust. Yeah. Um, so, and about the Iraqi police and mm-hmm. the Iraqi army, a lot of discussion about how the army hasn't been able to meet the benchmarks that have been set for them. It, but that's sort of a big policy topic. Did you encounter or interact with the Iraqi police or the Iraqi army much? For the most part, um, since I was mostly MP, I did a lot of uh, escort missions, but also a lot of uh, patrol, t- well, a little bit of patrol type stuff. Mm. Uh, a lot of times we would end up escorting the recruits, mm-hmm. guys that were basically going from their families to become police, to become Iraqi military. They wanted to support their country's infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a few times that uh, with the regular with the uh, regular police force or the Iraqi Defense Force or whatever divisions have since been set up, uh, that when you're working with them it's to a little extent uh kind of like the private security mm-hmm. you know like the uh independent contractors in that uh a lot of times they're doing it for the money they can get more money as a police officer so but again it's somebody that you don't know you haven't been with them so you can't really tell what their motives are or if you can depend on them or not Dependability is another issue because, again, in guerrilla warfare, maybe it's somebody you know that has that gun is really a militia um, member, exactly, yeah. a militia or just uh, some sort of independent. Uh, oh, we don't know if there is. Well, there could be an independent terrorist type. Yeah, you know they don't approve of one thing, so they're going to do whatever they can to make a difference. Right, at least in their mind. Yeah, infiltrate. Who they see as the enemy and try right, to sabotage yeah. from the inside. Either sabotage or spot espionage. Mm-hmm. I mean, there could be all kinds of... And so it's the not knowing. Right. Right. Um, or that kind of leads to the next question. Who is the enemy that you're fighting over there? <laughs> Literally speaking, it is whoever is endangering the welfare of civilians or friendly troops. Right. If someone is pointing a gun at you, that's the enemy. If someone is shooting at you, obviously. If they are engaging in some kind of activity to support the building of uh, the roadside bombs, they're carrying large amounts of explosives for Mm. no apparent reason. (laughs) If it happens to be, and this is actually uh, an event, a Mercedes driving down the road that starts swerving erratically when they see you, Mm. and you pull them over and they have grenades and machine guns and everything else you can imagine in their trunk. Probably know, not a friendly character. Probably not a friendly guy. Yeah. But uh, it's it's that vague description of the enemy. There's not like an enemy force. It's not like in the Cold War mm-hmm. 
you know, the enemy was the Russians, the Red Menace. It's, it, it's, there's no face to put on it. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, they're bad, we're good. And so the, I guess, it, so your role over there, as I, I think I gather with most of U.S. troops over there, is more as a police force rather than as a traditional army in that the traditional warfare is that you have clearly drawn battle lines and there's the bad guys there and is. then there's the good guys. But if you're, if this sort of urban combat that you're doing, it's just whatever there's incident. nothing traditional about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's it, it, basically you are fighting an enemy that for lack of a better term is invisible. Mm-hmm. Not wearing a uniform can blend in with the populace. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're wearing civilian clothes because they are civilian. Yeah. Well, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I guess that gets back to the hearts and minds uh, situation. How does it feel when you are protecting these people? And uh, ostensibly your mission is to you know bring peace uh, to this area, and this civilian population is, in fact, also the enemy. <laughs> it's, it brings a whole new degree of uh, difficulty to it. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a people that, for the most part, was happy that uh, somebody came in and changed how things were going. Mm-hmm. But as the years go on and this presence is still there, they're growing weary of it. Because mm-hmm. there are times that uh, traffic will get held up for four hours on end. You know, and you, as a driving a civilian, you know, your civilian driving to or from your job, your 30-minute commute ends up taking over five hours. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably going to start uh, pissing you off after a while. Mm-hmm. And that that leads to the the overall mission. Um, what what have you been told is the mission? Like like when you're dispatched on duty, what are you told is the mission that you're doing over there? It's the mission in Iraq. It's when it's phrased like that, it neglects the military hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, on a lower level, what I had experience with the mission is you patrol to this checkpoint and come back. If you see any suspicious suspicious behavior, you report it, you engage, you do whatever is necessary. Or you make sure that this person or these people or these goods get from point A to point B with no interference. Mm -hmm. And so on that scale, I mean, the mission is basically doing what you're told, and it's done every day Mm -hmm. successfully. Well, and sometimes not, but, you know, for the most part it is. Right. But if you get to the sort of higher end of the military hierarchy, you could say that the mission in general is what's been termed Operation Iraqi Freedom, OIF. And what is that? I mean, you're supposed to ensure peace, you know, uh, secure freedom, but from who? Mm -hmm. Freedom from Saddam? Not really a problem anymore, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's that sort of—I I mean, it's not really. I don't know if it's as much as a, a situation that can be described as something that can be won or lost. Right. It's become. Do you think it's just become an occupation now, and not really a, a traditional military endeavor? Again. I seriously doubt that we will ever see any traditional military endeavors right. ever again. Right. I mean, it's it, it doesn't work like that. Sure. Everything's either 
you push a button and an entire country goes away or it's stuff like this urban guerrilla warfare mm. it's not you know we have blue uniforms they have gray uniforms they don't believe what we believe so we're going to shoot them right and do you think with with something like that is is that achievable uh, do you see any progress in what you're doing over there do you, do you see any anything that indicates that what you're doing is in fact making a difference over there it depends a lot on how you define progress right you know progress overall or progress in certain areas while other areas tend to regress because with any sort of formal military action you know the country that it takes place in is devastated mm-hmm. you know uh public works you know so you have water electricity roadways these are departments that you know have a lot of gargantuan task ahead of them to rebuild and so even once that's rebuilt what's to say that the uh, government can support it do you think that you were properly trained for this kind of activity i was trained as well as i possibly could have been okay and if there's any sort of uh take-home message that we were supposed to get from the training it was expect the unexpected mm-hmm. you know uh vary your routine don't do the same thing the same way every time because mm-hmm. you are being watched the entire time you're there whether or not you know it and so people will start to pick up on uh routines that you may fall into and exploit that and this is we'll get to the grim topic here um did you see or know of anyone who was seriously hurt over there? I know that's a, a daily occurrence over there, and that's just mm-hmm. a fact of life when you're in the military, but uh, did you encounter that? It's one of those things. Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, everybody has been to a hospital. They've seen people who are hurt in a hospital. Everybody has been to a funeral you know, where somebody has died for whatever reason. Much fewer... There's a far fewer number of people who have seen someone become seriously hurt, have seen somebody killed, have seen somebody actually die. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely leaves a different impact on you. And it's something that, despite that impact, you have to sort of, you have to continue functioning. You can't let that paralyze you because it is... It is extremely intense. It's kind of fucked up, I imagine. A little bit. Yeah. A lot bit. Yeah. Um, and considering that that you do live in this environment where people do get injured and killed every day, uh, how does that impact morale of the troops and you specifically? Well, it's uh, circumstances uh, will dictate what effect it has. If it's something that just basically seems to be like a cheap shot, you know, there's nothing, you know, it was just luck that somebody happened to die, lack of luck, you know, it can actually be harmful to morale. But if it was somebody else who was doing his job exactly as he should, you know, and, you know, well-liked or something else, it can actually harden the resolve, you know, if that's what's going to happen. We're going to do our job that much better. Did you, did you know of anyone within your immediate group that was injured or killed? Um, 
I had actually uh, one guy in particular. I knew of actually quite a few people that uh, were hurt to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one guy in particular, I had spent several weeks drawing out what tattoo I wanted. It was great. It, 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 it was a great tattoo. <laughs> well, was real t- main, real, uh, you know, sort of unique. It had special meaning to me. Right. Well, the guy that was doing tattoos, he had all his own equipment. He had it shipped over from the United States, wow. and he had actually sort of set up, sh- set up shop. So when he uh, wasn't on a mission, which, you know, is a lot of times random, you arrange with him ahead of time, and for a very cheap price by comparison, he would set you up. And he's a very accomplished tattoo artist. He still is. But uh, I ended up never getting that tattoo because while on a patrol, his truck ran over an anti-tank line mine. Hmm. And as a result, he ended up losing his leg completely. Uh, and the first time I saw him after that, I didn't actually, I wasn't there at the incident itself but the first time i saw him was on july 4th of 2005 and he, i mean he was looking a little tore up but he's an incredibly strong person yeah, sort of a another issue when the troops do return and when they are injured there's the big scandal at walter reed army medical hospital um do you think that the armed services have the capacity to handle all of these injuries? I think they do, but in my experience, I can't really speak to Walter Reed because I never had any experience with that. I didn't know anybody that went there. Anybody that I knew that uh, got hurt would eventually end up at uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is actually a very nice Mm -hmm. institution. And, uh, I mean, everybody was well taken care of. Even the few times that I got hurt, granted, albeit extremely minor compared to most, uh, it was the best that I could have hoped for for the situation. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that the military does have the capacity. And for whatever reason that uh, these oversights occurred, you know, it's, it's not excusable, but it seems to be the exception rather than the norm. Okay. And another aspect of the injured and the dead returning home, uh, there's been a decision by the Pentagon not to allow photographs of coffins returning from Iraq. Uh, is that something that you agree with or, or haven't really considered or do not agree with? I can see both sides of that argument. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's important that the American people know the human toll what this is costing, not in dollars, but in lives. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I know everybody's seen at least one or two pictures of dozens of U.S. flag-draped coffins. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that just sort of brings the message home. But at the same time, I can understand that out of respect for the person in that coffin, for the person that they used to be, for their loved ones, not to allow that to be photographed. Mm-hmm. If... Uh, Sort of by comparison, I have never been at a funeral where there have been photographers. Right. You know, and it's disrespectful at the very least. Okay. So it's, I can understand it. Right. On some, uh, in some regards, I agree with it, and some I really don't. And you touched on this uh, in that response. Um, 
do you think that the American people are are getting the full picture of what's going on over there? No. No. And to sort of, I I guess, uh, put it in perspective, the American people are only aware of what they're told. If you're not over there, if you don't experience that, or anything in particular, not just this this conflict, Mm -hmm. you don't really know. You only know what you're told. Um, By comparison, a recent incident, uh, if you have never been exposed to Yatos, (laughs) <laughs> you know, a delicious I, cheese, by the yeah, way. A delicious, very delicious cheese. <laughs> but if I were to tell you that it's soft, it's sweet, and it has a weird color, what would you think I was talking about? Yeah, I would think you might be talking about candy or caramel. Uh, it, 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 my point is, you wouldn't nec- those things that I told you yeah. aren't necessarily wrong. Right. It's not incorrect. It's just not a complete picture. Yeah. It's it's difficult to comprehend unless you experience it yourself. Right now, if I say here's a piece of yay toast, try it. Yeah. Well, then you know exactly what it is. <laughs> and uh, it, and that's just it. It's not necessarily the uh, American view is not incorrect. It is just Uninformed. very incomplete. Right. Do you think that there should be more done to try to inform the American public about what's going on over there? Possibly, but short of drafting every single man, woman, and child in the United States and yeah. letting them see for themselves firsthand yeah. what is going on over there, you're not going to get the sort of real understanding of exactly what's happening. Do you feel that if there was a draft, mm-hmm. uh, if there was more shared sacrifice uh, in this country, if like we were more mobilized for this war, do you think that that might make a difference in well first of all how this war is being i I know you you don't really want to get into like grand policy topics but just maybe in your anecdotal experience you think if more people were involved with the war effort that it a might be going a a bit better or or b would have happened at all it probably still would have happened regardless but a draft even at this point in time or even a few years ago, would be disastrous. Mm. You would see the populations of Canada and Mexico rising exponentially. (laughs) Uh, But if America had a system that was more compulsory service, regardless, when you turn 18, you serve two years. Kind of what Israel has right now. Israel or – I know that Singapore has something similar. I want to say it's actually two years. Uh, You – if – everybody was required, then everybody would have some firsthand knowledge, mm-hmm. to, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't get into this situation where you're sending the same troops over and over again with a very short period of time at home. That, that leads to kind of another question. Do you think that this term's been used quite a bit, but is, is, the, is the military stretched right now? The military is, at least in my experience, is very stretched. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, serving in a more active capacity, you either, there were three types of people in the military. Those who have been, those who are over, and those who are going. There mm. is nobody else. Mm. There's nobody who's not going. Right. Um, and you start getting involved in one location, then another, then another. You're going to run out sooner or later. 
Did you encounter a lot of uh, National Guardsmen that were over there? Quite a few. Yeah. Did Did you ever talk to them about their experience and how, like, sort of unusual it is for that many National Guardsmen to be called up and for as uh, long a length of time as they have been? My experience with them is actually, you know, several years ago. So, and I didn't have, even though I knew of a lot, I knew of a lot of National Guard units, I had relatively little interaction. But for the most part, these are guys who have been out of the service for quite some time and have been called back. Mm -hmm. And so much like I mentioned earlier, their lives have been put completely on hold. But it's just not just my situation where I'm a college grad, you know, new job, new house, looking for a new car, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They have families. I mean, they've had jobs they've worked at for 15 years Mm -hmm. or better. You know, teachers, doctors, everybody. Yeah. You know, pretty much any occupation. And so not only is that sort of uh, an adjustment to get to, but that's always in the back of your mind. Will you be going back? Highly unlikely. Really? Okay. And I can answer that question definitively nine weeks from now. Okay. (laughs) Over the next nine weeks, uh, and that's actually when my contract is officially up. Right. uh, There would have to be something major happen for me to leave again. Yeah. And after that, there is nothing that could be said or done that could uh, require me to go involuntarily. Have they tried to re-enlist you? Like signing bonuses, I hear, have gone through the roof. Signing bonuses, uh, you have re-enlistment, but also uh, a lot of the other services, being Navy, Air Force, Army, want to get uh, prior service Marines as part of their military force. Mm. And so those, uh, the sort of interbranch transfers, there's bonuses for that. You know, there's bonuses to re-enlist. And I've even been approached about being commissioned. I mean, everything. They want to retain because it's cheaper to keep somebody in, even paying them several thousand dollars, than trying to not just recruit, but you have to train that new person. So by the time you even get out of training, you know, there's so much money already invested in you and it takes time to do that right and i gather that you're not interested in re-enlisting no okay (laughs) no (laughs) um i keep hearing about how a lot of people think that they're done but there are uh contractual loopholes where the army can re-extend uh compulsory service uh, have you heard of this happening, and are you afraid that that might happen to you? I've heard of it happening. I've known people personally who have experienced that. Uh, but as for me, my type of contract, even the fine print, and it also has to deal with the difference in the services too. Mm-hmm. National Guard is not the same as, obviously, regular service, but it's also not the same as the Marine Reserve, right? of which I was a member. Uh, it sort of doesn't work the same way. Yeah. So once my time is done, that's all there is. Do you know of people who will be uh, going back? I know of people who have already been back since I've uh, been back here, but also I know of people who, once they came back, at least the first time, got out. They wanted nothing more to do uh, with the Marines. And a short time later, 
they re-enlisted and requested that they be sent back because it's not really missing being over there. You complain about it every minute you are. (laughs) But it's that what opportunities in your life are you going to be given to make that much of a difference? And I'm not saying necessarily make that much of a difference to the Iraqi people, Mm -hmm. but more to your fellow Marines, your fellow service members. You know, had it not been me and that gun, would somebody else's lack of vigilance gotten other people killed? Right. Or would somebody else have died unnecessarily? Talk about some of the downtime that you had over there. Like, what what did you guys do to pass the time? (laughs) Well, one of the things, and I actually taught a couple other guys how to do this, was uh, some people call them mashups music videos, you take pictures and put it to a song. Uh, or you take video, digital video clips and put it to a song. and uh, Or you would just videotape doing weird things to other people. <laughs> and then, you know. Uh, so I would actually teach people how to use this software, how you do that. And I mean, that's one way. Some bases would actually have internet access, so you could email people back home, mm-hmm. which is a lot faster than the two-week turnaround time for writing a handwritten letter. But the handwritten letter, it's still nice to have something tangible. Sure. Uh, downtime, too much downtime can be bad because <laughs> you start to get creative. If nothing else, you'll wake up, get something to eat, clean your weapon, Get in trouble. Go eat lunch. <laughs> clean your weapon again. What is the strangest thing that you saw when you were in Iraq? Like I said, strange was daily. Yeah. So also surreal. You see a cow. No big deal. I mean, there are animals all over the place. You see donkeys and camels and whatever. Yeah. But you notice there's something weird about that cow. It has a couple of wires coming out of it. It's a live cow. It's mooing. It's walking around. Right. You don't really think much about it, but, you know, okay, whatever. The cow ate something, and it's coming out. (laughs) Well, the sort of humor drops from the situation when you realize that somebody has placed a 120-millimeter mortar inside that live cow to making a walking, breathing bomb. They shoved it up up its ass? They shoved it up a cow's ass. Jesus. (laughs) So how was that situation dealt with? Uh, explosive ordnance disposal. I bet that was messy. I do not know for certain, but I uh, am under the impression that the cow lived. Really? Yes. Is that it was the explosive was able to be removed without (laughs) incident, and the cow was able to go on his merry little way, chewing cud. A a bizarrely happy ending to a bizarre story. Yes. (laughs) That... That I, that qualifies as surreal, I think. A cow bomb. A cow bomb, yes. Wow. Well, okay. Sort of in closing, um, how has this Iraq experience in general changed, affected your life? If you're not someone who knew me beforehand, you might think that it has warped me forever, which to some degree it has. But I was messed up before. <laughs> uh, I, I have no. Uh, delusions about that. Right. But anymore, I am a lot more chill than I used to be. Um, things don't get to me. Upset doesn't mean the same thing. 
you have a you get bit of a different tra- perspective. Right. Uh, you get stuck in traffic. Somebody cuts you off. Uh, somebody cuts in front of you at the grocery grocery store. Uh, you have to deal with a rude clerk. Whatever. These are things that would tend to upset the everyday person. But no matter how bad the situation, you know, or, or boring, you just have to sit in the doctor's office for two and a half hours. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone like myself, you understand that things could be worse. I could be stuck in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, that it's not to say that Iraq can't be a nice place to live. I'm just saying that right now in particular, there are other places I would rather be. Right. <laughs> I would rather be, for example, sitting in a doctor's office for an unknown amount of time. And, um, but that uh, I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, my perspective on death, even though it was sort of acceptance, seeing certain things and experiencing them firsthand, it's sort of, I mean, it will change your perspective. You know, um, had I actually died, it would have been, at least in my mind, reasonably honorable service mm-hmm. to one's country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are worse ways to go. Sure. But now that I'm back here, uh, I'm probably going to be walking down the street. <laughs> a cement truck's going to hit a pothole. It'll jump a curb and turn me <laughs> in a grease spot. Uh, you know, so it's one of those things that uh, if and when I – okay, I know I – know, it's not an if, but when I yes, die, yes. Uh, what's the best thing could, that could actually come from that? Yeah, eh, not too much. The temperature uh, hot does not mean the same thing anymore. <laughs> so when you hear people bitching and moaning about, oh, it's so humid in this Kansas weather, it's, yeah. it's not the heat that's humidity. Yes. Uh, that's is, um, it's the sand of the scorpions. My, but the same by the same token, cold also doesn't mean the same thing either, because yeah. you welcome the cold. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I think one of the most significant things is that I have, or at least I feel, and other people that I've talked to uh, ex- have experienced this too, is that I am, I have been artificially aged. You know, physically and mentally, I a lot of times see myself as even a decade older than what I really am, Mm. maybe more, you know, chronologically it's the same as somebody that would have been back here, but it's those things that take their toll on you Mm -hmm. on both your body and your mind. And that's something that even today, I mean, I'm still coming to terms with, I'm still dealing with it. So how old are you? 26, 26, right. You know, and I have had, as a result of certain injuries or other things, I've had medical procedures and everything that I shouldn't have to get until I'm 50 or 60. Right. You know, uh, just certain things that are wrong, you know, you start noticing back pain and joints. And I mean, it's part of the normal aging process, but it doesn't feel like at 26, or at least a few years ago, I didn't think at 26 I'd be having some of the issues uh, that I am now. Right. Um, and, and I guess the, the flip side to that is, um, were, were there any fond memories of your time in Iraq? <laughs> For the most part, my answer to that should be, um, leaving, <laughs> but there is one thing and it is really hard to describe to someone who again, hasn't been there, mm-hmm. but the stars, 
I don't know. I, I mean, in daily life, you know, when the, at night when the stars come out, you look up and, I mean, you see a few. Or if you're out in the country, you see a few more. Mm-hmm. But in America, there is scarcely a place where you can be hundreds of miles from any sort of nighttime light and look up. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Like, if you've ever been uh, possibly in a planetarium, I could... It still doesn't grasp the same kind of magnitude because there is nothing on the skyline. Mm-hmm. You know, no buildings. You see everything, and it is hmm. amazing. Wow. But other than that, uh, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> well, it's something. <laughs> well, that very poetic note. Uh, I think uh, that's about it. And Jeff Hodges, thank you again very much for joining well, us thank here. Thank you very much for having me here. We appreciate you sharing your story, and we appreciate your service. Well, thank you.